Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, Jody Patterson talks about how raising a transgender child led to her own transformation. There are lots of different ways to um, support, and the key is to find a way to support. One way, any way, because the support is what saves a life, but it also changes the conversation for everyone else around you. What do you do when your child is angry all the time and seemingly uncomfortable in his or her own skin? Jody Patterson was mystified by her child's behavior until Penelope said words that would change her life forever. Everyone thinks I'm a girl, mama, and I'm not. Those words launched Patterson, Brooklyn resident, mother of five, activist, and entrepreneur, on a mission to shape the world into a place where her son Penelope could grow and thrive. In her new book, she talks about the transitions made by her whole family, and she connects the 60s civil rights movement and intersectional feminism with the struggle for transgender and gender nonconforming rights. The book is called The Bold World, and it recently brought Jody Patterson to our studio. Here's our conversation. It's amazing how uh, much of a person children are even at two or three, we sort of have this idea that we mold them into who they will become, but kids are born with personalities. They come with so much, and I realized that my first child, and she and I happened to be very uh, similar. She's a, she was like a budding feminist at the age of one. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, this, one, this is great, I can do this. And then I had my second child, who is a boy, and I sat there and I watched him like crash his uh, trucks and you know knock over blocks, and I thought, oh my gosh, I, I don't even understand this mentality. Um, and so that was a learning curve um, to understand my, my son. And, and then Penelope came yes. along. And what were your expectations for Penelope? Did you imagine that it would be just like raising your first daughter, Georgia? I did. I thought that finally we have three females in the house. We will outnumber them. This will be a house full of feminists. I was really expecting just a very sort of similar experience to my first daughter. A lot of um, conversation between us, a lot of snuggles, a lot of similarities. And I was like, excited to raise another young budding feminist. I mean, that was all I kept thinking about, like how great this world would be um, with these two fantastically smart, ambitious girls that I was raising. And I want to come back to Penelope, of course, mm -hmm. but let's step back and talk about this household of feminists. Because yeah. you were raised uh, in a context of feminism. Um, you come from a line of very strong, educated, powerful black women. So will you tell me a little bit about, about the family? Your, about your family. I love my family. And I've loved them more after writing this book because I really started to go into all the stories. I mean, you kind of know your family, but then when you sit down to write a 400-page book, you start to peel back layers. And um, so I come from this line of women who have always done things differently at, during times when it was not easy. So my family comes from the South. Uh, my great-great-great-grandmother was educated. My great-great-grandmother was educated. My grandmother was educated. She had a PhD and a master's. Uh, she was a professor at uh, Emory and at Clark Atlanta University. She's married five times in her lifetime. One man she married twice. <laughs> uh, she sounds extraordinary. She's extraordinary. And, you know, as an adult, I start to think about what that really means. And she fought against school boards and hospitals to desegregate the South, and she won those. She won those cases. She was just an extraordinary woman, Dr. Gloria Blackwell. They called her a communist during the time of the Civil Rights Movement because she was so counterculture to the Southern racist culture. 
Um, and then she raised my mother, Jamel Rackley, and my aunt, Lerma Rackley. These two women did it their own way. So my mother studied at the University of Strasbourg, Harvard, Wesleyan. She studied French. <laughs> and then she went on to open up a school in Harlem, a private school in Harlem for black children. My Aunt Lerma married Gil Scott Heron, who wrote The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Actually, no, I'm sorry. My Aunt Lerma had ch a child with Gil Scott Heron. She chose not to marry in the legal sense. She chose to love without legalities. So that was pretty radical at the time. Absolutely. She specifically said, I want to have a child, and I love. I want to love, but I don't want the legalities around it. So she's also very radical. I sat with my father, and he told me about his mother in Harlem, who was the breadwinner of their family. And, and a basketball player as well. And a basketball player. So she would go to work every day cleaning houses, and she would come home. And before she made it home, she would stop at the basketball courts to let off steam. So a lot of my family members did things differently. My father, John Patterson, started the first black brokerage firm on, uh, on Wall Street. So I wasn't, I've never been afraid of um, going against the grain. But at the same time, I never knew what that meant in terms of gender and family until I had... Penelope. Right. And and so at the same time, you're coming from this lineage of strong, empowered women, but actually the household that you grew up in was quite gendered. Is that yeah, right? Absolutely. So I think, you know, feminism, um, the way I have known it in my family, in a black family, was about believing in women. It was about understanding the value of women. But it wasn't about separating from men. It wasn't about, you know, leaving men behind. It wasn't about trailblazing without partnership. I mean, black families wanted to stay together. Black families wanted to be together. So feminism in my family took a very different um, look. It meant education. It meant jobs. And it meant strong faith, strong faith. And so I grew up with feminists, but I grew up with uh, families that understood life to be very male and female. And many of the men led the households in their own way. But, yeah, I mean, I grew up with a very traditional father mm -hmm. um, and a very traditional mother who uh, my dad ran the house. He ran the finances, and my mom ran the emotions, and she took care of the children. And you write in your book about how your dad, who was raised by a woman who was the breadwinner and mm -hmm. a dad who stayed home and took care of the children, about how your father sort of saw that as an upending of the way that things should be and a humiliation, perhaps. Life upside down. Exactly. And um, there's a heartbreaking scene in your book where you— Which one? <laughs> so many. One of the heartbreaking scenes yeah. in your book is when you come to your dad and you're so excited because you've decided that you want to go to grad school. Will you tell us what his response was? So this was a really hard um, piece to write in the book because I had to decide if I wanted to expose this. And then I had to decide if I did expose it, it was going to be there and I'd have to go back to it time and time again. And, and I, I chose to put it in the book. So when I was I graduated from Spelman College, I spent some time trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I did some time as a junior publicist uh, for books and um, junior editor, sorry, for books. And then finally, after about a year of kind of not really being settled in my career, I went back to my dad and I said, Dad, I have this great idea. I know exactly what I want to do and I need your help. I would like to go back to grad school to be a master of words. And he sat at the dining room table and he you know, kind of looked at me and said, well, grad school is for fat, gay, and ugly women. This is a man who I love. This is a man who means the world to me. He shaped me in so many ways. His perspective on what women were 
supposed to do was so apparent to his time, so tied to his generation. And so he said to me, look, I'm not paying for grad school. If you want to do it, go ahead, but you should marry well. You're really beautiful. You're really smart. You should marry well. He thought my worth was specifically anchored in family. And for me, it was family and family and education, family and um, career, family and following passion. My dad said, no, it's for fat, ugly, gay women. First thing I thought was, well, what if I am fat, ugly, and gay? What if those things apply mm -hmm. to me? What if I define them differently than you do? Mm -hmm. You know, what does it mean to be fat, gay, and ugly? I personally don't, don't agree with your terminology. And so all of these things went through my head, and I realized at the time that my dad was a part of the system that was against me. So sometimes the people you love um, are tied into that. Absolutely, and I think that it's a brave act to portray people who you love in the book as whole, complicated mm. characters. Very, very layered. And that was what I discovered when writing this book, that I mean, you, you know that life is complicated, but it is so layered. Well, you experienced um, you experienced something with your child Penelope telling you, everyone thinks I'm a girl, yeah. but I'm actually a boy, uh, that I imagine shook to the bedrock a lot of ideas that maybe you held about gender. And you write about mm -hmm. how your first reaction was, I have failed because I have a daughter. Um, that was what I was thinking, yeah. Who doesn't think that it's cool to be a strong, empowered black woman. I really was seeing myself in Penelope, mm -hmm. so I thought we're probably very similar. You know, I thought th it's Mars versus Venus, and so Penelope and I are in one track, and Joe, my husband at the time, and the boys were in another track. And so when Penelope said, Mama, I don't want to be you. I want to be Papa. I love you, but I don't want to be you. I thought, wow, I forgot to tell this girl about the women in our lives that have changed us for the better. Shirley Chisholm, Billie Jean King, Nina Simone, Toni Morrison, Maya Angelou, you know, my grandmother, my great, I forgot to tell the stories, I thought. I forgot to instill self-pride. I thought I had dropped the ball on feminism, and so I really, because feminism was my lens, and I thought feminism was about women mm -hmm. doing more, and so I thought maybe I just didn't do enough. So I spent a lot of time after that moment, the next year, trying to do more trying to fix my wrong, trying to like um, do some investigation and find out where the missing link was. And I did 10,000 hours. Like Malcolm Gladwell says 10,000 hours to become an expert. And I was like, I will become an expert in this. I will find out where I failed. <sighs> and what helped shift your thinking um, to come to the understanding that this is not a failure on your part, uh, that Penelope is a boy? Yeah. I, th I, I think we just we let go of things once they don't serve us anymore. So we let go of stories that no longer serve us. We let go of myths. We let go of ideals that no longer serve us. And when I got to the point where I was worn out, my body was failing, I was exhausted, I was tired, I was sad. Penelope wasn't doing well either. He was frustrated, he was angry, he was invisible in many ways to us. Those cause chasms in families and in lives. And so when I got to the point where we just started to sink, I decided, well, I can, I can toss out my kid who's telling me something that doesn't make sense, or I can toss out the idea that I had been sitting on for so long. 
toss out the, the world as I knew it. And that's a really scary thing, to think of tossing out an entire way of thinking. But what was scarier was losing my kid. So I just said, let me reevaluate. Let me reevaluate. And I didn't start from day one. I started way back. I went back down south. So I, in order to reevaluate this very moment, I had to go back down south and look at my family. And in looking at the history, I realized that there's perspective around this very moment, very confusing moment of gender. And the perspective is that many of us go against status quo. It's just the way we are inside. Many of us don't fit in. It's just the way we are inside. And I then thought Penelope is a revolutionary. He's just internally wired, perhaps not status quo making. He does not have one of the two choices. He is something entirely different. Many of us are. That, you know, after I realized that Penelope's different, I thought, oh gosh, so am I. Yeah, so am I. Tell me about the reaction of some of your family members. And I'm thinking specifically about Penelope's father okay. um, and grandfather, yeah. two men who had very narrow ideas about gender roles and whose reactions were quite surprising. They were. So I have, um, I married a man who's African and Canadian from Ghana. His dad was from Ghana and his mom is from Canada. And I loved him because he had this great, strong idea of family and a very wide sense of family. Um, and that was how I was raised as well. And so uh, I was attracted to his family heritage and his family legacy. He's also really good looking. That helps. <laughs> yeah, that helps. <laughs> um, and, he's, and, he's, and he's wicked smart. So all of this made for this perfect relationship. But as you start to have children and as you start to open up businesses and as life gets much more complicated, it, it seemed as though life was working in his favor much of the time. He could go out and go to work and come home when he pleased and do the things that he wanted. And it felt like sometimes life was not working in my favor. I was working, but I still had the house to tend to and the children to tend to and the emotions to tend to. So as Penelope became more obviously um, not a little girl, <laughs> when, as Penelope started to insist that we say he and insist that he's a boy, his father said, well, if, if he really wants to be a boy, he's going to have to tell me face to face, eye to eye. Penelope was three. And Penelope said, Papa, I'm a boy. I'm a boy. And, and Joe said, OK. <laughs> he started off as a man who only had 30 minutes of babysitting time for his children. He would do a long day on Wall Street. He would come home, he would loosen his tie, and he would say, I have 30 minutes to babysit. But if you look at him now, he does half the work. Mm. He has the kids for a week at a time on his own, and I have the kids for a week at a time on my own. He does homework, he does lunches, he does hair, he does clothing shopping. He does the emotions. You know, he does the full package of parenting, and he does it with such compassion, and he's never once lost a moment of love with Penelope. So it took him a while to say the word trans. He stumbled over the pronouns, but he, he remained in love with his child the whole time. Well, I was super interested as well the first time that I think in the book you mentioned using the word transgender. Mm. Joe had a, a quite like woke reaction in some ways. What was it? I can't remember. He was like, well, let's not oh, narrowly man. define it as trans uh, because his mother being Canadian and his father being from Ghana. He was like, look, I exist on a spectrum of blackness and whiteness, and so maybe gender is a spectrum too, and I'm perhaps using yeah. a phrasing that no, is a little right. bit... I was like 
pushing for the terminology. I wanted us to define it and stand on it, stand and own it. Mm. And Joe was like, wait a second, why do we need another definition? You know, when I go to Africa, they call me white boy. When I'm in America, they call me the N-word. Labels have divided us. Labels have hurt us as black people. So why would we even think of putting another label on our kid? And so we, we battled on that. I wanted to blaze forward, right? I wanted to, everyone to wear a sign. <laughs> we love transgender. We love our son who's transgender. We love the word transgender. I was using the word at any moment I could. Mm-hmm. And Joe wanted to slow it down a bit. And I, you know, now I look back on it and I know there's just, there are lots of different approaches to this. Right. There are lots of different ways to um, support. And the key is to find a way to support, one way, any way, because the support is what saves a life, but it also changes the conversation for everyone else around you. And I also was really struck by Joe's father, this sort of... Um, Grandpa G. Yes, this, <laughs> this Ghanaian patriarch uh, who you were a little nervous about talking to about pronoun usage. And tell me uh, Grandpa G's reaction. So I had spent a lot of time with Grandpa G. He's the patriarch of our family and very Ghanaian, very traditional, very religious, also very well educated. He's an eye surgeon, travels the world, but specifically chose and intentionally chose to keep his Ghanaian culture. So he was coming to stay with us for some time and we were very nervous that he wouldn't necessarily understand Penelope as he. So we sat on it, we tried to think of how we would handle it and how how we would approach it and we decided never use the word transgender, never talk about the body, um, steer away from religion, right? So we just really, Nicely, very politely, uh, after giving him a nice meal and some uh, nice glass of water, we said, Grandpa G, would it be possible for you to please just change your language? Just use he instead of she for Penelope. And then we kind of like took a deep breath and waited for the answer. And the answer could have gone in many different directions because here's a man who has said to me, never speak after a man has spoken. Men always finish an important conversation. So he's steeped in these ideas that men um, are bigger than women. So after I asked him, please, Pop, Grandpa G, could you please just use he instead of she, he laughed. <laughs> I remember this like it was yesterday. He laughed and said, sure, no problem. I got it because in my language of Twi, we don't even use gender pronouns. So the language doesn't mean anything to me. It's totally flexible. And so that from that point on, Grandpa G, older African, Penelope, younger trans, had the best relationship. They never missed a beat. And it was simply, the entry point was language. It wasn't the big concept of gender. And that made me remember, you just have to find a way to connect. Just one yes. <laughs> one yes does it. How did Penelope help you reexamine some of the gender roles that you held within yourself? Or help you reexamine your notion of gender? When I said, look, the whole world is yours to touch and to be a part of, not just the lane for girls, not just the lane for boys, but every aspect of life is yours. When I said that to him, it kind of stopped me in my tracks because I was also talking to myself. And it gave me this understanding, or gave me the freedom to do the same for myself. So much of life is about being in your lane, becoming an expert in your lane so that we can be efficient in our day and we can make a lot of money <laughs> and you know, without the bumps and bruises. But when we're talking about this life that I want, this bold life, it is not about the lane. It is about exploring. It's about like touching everything and experiencing anything you want. And so I had to re-examine myself. And that comes with a lot of um, fallout 
relationships don't necessarily last because a lot of the relationships that we um, make contracts with, we make contracts with our loved ones. I enter this way. I'm pretty much going to stay this way. Mm. You know, you can depend on me this way. Well, I wasn't this way anymore. So my relationships, some of them fell apart. It's like the, the fallout. And the book, I think, on its surface is about the transformation of a child. Mm. But actually, it's about your transformation as the parent of a child. Um, one question I'm sure you get asked a lot is Penelope's name. Yeah. Uh, Penelope is his birth name. And did he ever ask to change it? Or what was that discussion like? <laughs> People think that I have kept him in this name. I mean, I love the name. He was named after his grandmother, uh, Penelope. And about five years ago, I asked a very naive question. How, said, how old is Penelope now? So Penelope is 11 now. Okay. And several years ago, I said to Penelope, well, you know, now that you're a boy, do you want to change your name to something a little more boyish? And he said, well, why, Mama? Why would I do that? And I said, well, you know, so that people can understand. And he laughed at me and he said, Mama, like, if this makes people uncomfortable, maybe they want to call me Jack. And he kind of winked at me. It was a, it was a joke. But he said, I, I love my name. I was named after my grandmother. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my name. So he's a boy named Penelope. And when people say, wait, that's so strange. Your name is Penelope? He says, yeah, I was named after my grandma. <laughs> and that's it. I mean, in so many ways, I think that kids get it in a way that so adults fast. don't, where the reaction is, okay, like, yeah. weird, Penelope, but, like, cool, let's go play. Totally, um, and I think it's, like, a little um, – children also want definitions or they also want an understanding, but theirs are much, so much more interesting and nuanced. It's, like, the particulars of a person. Like, what do you like to do? You know, what do you like to – how do you do things more so than – you know, what's your race? What's your age? What's your ethnicity? Mm -hmm. What's your socioeconomic mm -hmm. background? <laughs> right. um, can you situate trans rights in a, in a continuum of civil rights to me? Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about why should black people care about trans rights? Why should feminists care about trans rights? So the, the question is often asked, are you comparing black people and transgender people? And I'm not. I'm comparing oppression. So when I look at what my grandparents went through, my parents, during the civil rights era, and I look at the scenarios that were created and the stories that were created, you know, around water fountains, black people not being able to drink from the same water fountains, we know it was not about water. It wasn't about water fountains. It was about um, pushing certain people, black people, out of public spaces, making them invisible. Because if you can't hydrate and drink water, if you can't use the bathroom, you tend not to go outside. You tend to, be, to stay hidden. And so now today we're looking at um, the conversation around trans people and, and uh, bathrooms are becoming this huge topic, right? Scary bathrooms, scary people. It's not about bathrooms. Again, it's about pushing transgender people, gender nonconforming people, intersex people to the sidelines and not allowing them to enter common everyday life. And so I look at oppression and I see how it is this, has the same feeling it has the same uh, smell, and it has the same end game. And so I want to make sure that we're not starting the story when Penelope says, I am a boy. We're starting the story all the way back, because without that, we have no perspective. Mm. And that's all I'm saying, that there are similarities of oppression that need to be analyzed. And it's so important that we show up for one another, because our struggles are intertwined in these systems of oppression and trying to tear them down. We are. I mean, I, I had a hard time with lots of different communities trying to prove that this is a valid conversation. And so I've looked, I've had conversations within the black community 
and I've heard folks ask me to stick to what is really important to move the dial, mass incarceration, gun control, housing crisis, education. And these are really important topics for black pe- black people. In particular, they, ha- they hold heavy weight on us. Absolutely. But I'll tell you, if we don't deal with um, identity and the right to be who you are, and if we don't deal with combating transphobia, we will have more death, more suicide, more murder. We're talking about roughly 2 million trans people that are out. So if life for 2 million Americans is hostile, then all Americans feel that hostility. It's not like over there. It's, it's, it is in our life. And so we have to address the fact that millions of Americans aren't being treated with dignity. Mm-hmm. And that's the 2 million who are out and millions Just out, more yeah. are closeted. Yeah. Not everyone will have a trans child, but I'm curious about what being the mother of Penelope has taught you about parenting that might be applicable to Mm. parents everywhere. Someone said to me, you know, if you write this book, it's like cancer. Like if you don't have cancer, you don't buy a book on cancer. If you don't have a trans kid, you don't buy a a book on trans. And that made me so angry. Um, And so I tried to write the biggest, broadest, widest book I could make. I tried to pull every experience I have gone through, and I tried to tell a story in the widest sense of we, because I wanted people to learn what I've learned, which is that we are who we are from the inside. Like the body comes secondary, it is here to perform for the inside, the mind and the soul. And so when we're talking about being better, and that could be better parents, better lovers, better self-carers, better workers, right, better thinkers, we have to think start that process from the inside. And so the bold world is about how we, how we analyze ourself, how we um, show up for other people. And I think it makes us reconsider what it means to be alive. So I don't want this to be just for the trans community. I wrote it for black trans boys and black trans girls, but I want it to be everyone because I guarantee you your neighbor or your kid or your friend is trans. Somebody in your life is trans. So this is, um, it is a book that I think can do us all a little bit of good in terms of how we show up for each other. And once again, the book is called The Bold World. It is out now. Go buy it. It is an amazing read. Thank you. And Jody, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. That's the show for today. Hope to see you next time. One Win 2 BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogsag, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 